0: Is there really hope for that mom or for that um, beautiful girl whose service I performed some years ago? Is there really hope in the midst of the darkness? I think that's a question that many, many of us ask as we experiencing, experience the heaviness of life. And I hope that today we're going to begin to move into an answer to that question in a deeper way. And that if you came to this place today searching for that kind of answer because of your experiences in life, I, I pray that you will find God speaking to you and encouraging your spirit today. The year was 1843, and a parish priest in the French village of Roquemar, located along the banks of the Rhone River, had a problem. It had been an incredibly difficult year, to say the least. France, his nation, had gone to war with neighboring Algeria. The uh, economic situation had gotten bad. Europe was in tumult. There had been so many deaths from illness in his parish that the priest was worn out from just consoling families and performing all these services. And yet, in the midst of the darkness of that time, there had been this little glimmer of hope. Uh, the church had a, um, a, a beautiful old pipe organ uh, in its premises and they had managed to get together enough money to, to repair the organ and to restore it to its original splendor. And so the problem that the priest was wrestling with was what would be an appropriate way of doing that? Uh, Christmas was approaching. How can we sort of tie things together in a wonderful way and dedicate this organ to the glory of God? And then he hit on a, an idea. He approached a a lawyer in the town of Roquemore whose name was Placide Capot. And he said to him, Placide, would you consider using your abilities to write a Christmas poem that we could recite at the rededication of the organ? And Placide said, yes. And he went to work. Now Placide himself was no stranger to sudden challenges or to difficult times. Uh, When he was just a boy of some eight years old, he had been playing with his uh, best friend and there had been a terrible accident. The uh, friend had uh, accidentally fired a, a gun and it hit Placide's hand and the injury was so severe that the boy's right hand had to be amputated. This, under almost any circumstances, would be a horrific experience, but it was especially so because Placide had his heart set upon the idea of of taking over one day his father's barrel-making business, the trade that his father was in, in support of the local uh, vintners. And this hope was now completely dashed. Not only Capot's family was uh, devastated by this tragic accident, but also the family of the boy who had shot the gun was, was racked with sorrow and guilt over what had happened, so much so that they decided to put up money so that Placide could find a new avenue in life. He could no longer pursue this trade, but he could perhaps use his other gifts in ways that could make a difference in the world. So they funded his entry into a local school and then eventually provided half of the money needed to send him off to a college. And in the midst of the darkness of that time, a light began to shine, a new dawn began to arise. For it turns out that Placide Capot had actually been gifted by God with a rather remarkable capacity to take sublime wisdom and convert it into simple words. As Christmas came that year in 1843, Placide Capot presented to the parish priest the Christmas poem that he had written. The poem was subsequently uh, joined together with... uh, the music that had been written by a local artist, uh, a man uh, that was gaining notoriety in that town because of his uh, musical capacities. His name was Adolf Adam, he was a rising composer who had actually written a ballet that was starting to be performed called Giselle. It's still being performed to this day. And, And the words that Capot supplied and the music that Adams supplied were conjoined and in 1847, the opera singer Emily Laurie debuted the combined work in a performance in the town of Roquemore, and the song broke like the dawn from the darkness of time and out into history, reverberating even to this day. It's been sung by Celine Dion. It's been sung by the likes of Andrea Bocelli. It's been sung by Mariah Carey. It's been sung by innumerable artists all around the world, including uh, soloists of Christ Church every single Christmas Eve. Perhaps you know the song. This is how Capot began his famous poem. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the Spirit felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, Oh, hear the angel voice says, Oh, night divine, the night when Christ was born. You're hired as our choir. <laughs> you know the song. You know this extraordinary work, born out of such suffering and loss. Our preaching team entitled our Christmas series this year, A Thrill of Hope, The Weary World Rejoices, because it is our experience that this weary world of ours and many of the people we know and even our own spirits are longing for a reason for hope in these days. We're longing for some kind of experience of hope. Each of the weeks of this series, we're going to take a clause or a phrase or a line from Capot's famous poem, and we're going to use it to try and express one of the reasons that the Bible does give us for hope right now. It's no longer 1843. It's almost 2023, but war and economic tumult and disease and death and violence and tragedy and all of these other forms of darkness still lay very heavy upon many, many people's lives. And one of the most important messages of Christmas, not the only one, but certainly one of the key messages to quote Capot is that we can live with hope for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Now I can only imagine how many of us or of the people that we're close to in life need to dare to believe, to hold on to the hope that there is a new morning somehow out there in the midst of what they're going through. I know that was especially true for the family whose story we're going to read together this morning as we meet it in the very first chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. I invite you to open up in your Bibles with me to that text if you've got them on your phone or in your hand in some other way. Let me just set the context for this story so it makes more sense. Three millennia ago, 3,000 years ago, God commissioned one of the famous 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe called, the tribe of Levi in particular, long before there were blue jeans, they were actually a tribe from which the blue jean maker got the name. And, And he gave to this tribe a particular role in the life of the people. The Levites were ordained as stewards of the religious life of the nation. They were the workforce that would provide for the worship services, the community care ministries, the the justice uh, systems that would keep the spirituality of Israel going and growing and being passed on from generation to generation. We would say they were sort of like the elders or the church staff of the religious community. That's the function of the Levites. Within the Levites, however, there was a particular family called out for an even more specialized role. And the family that got called out was the family of Aaron, the the brother of Moses, the famous prophet, one of the two greatest of the Old Testament prophets, who as you remember were Moses and and Elijah, right. So the family of, of, of Moses was invited to play the role as the priesthood of Israel. In other words, if the Levites as a whole were like, like the elders and the, and the church staff, the, the family of Aaron was the pastoral staff within that wider company. So with this background, let me continue the story. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So here's the, here's the scene. There's this couple, yeah, he, he's a pastor. She's from a, a, a pastor's family. And they are sort of out of the ordinary people. They are are really committed people. God looks at both of them and says, you're living a beautiful life. I mean, literally a blameless life in the sight of God. But they were childless, the text says, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. Now, Now, this had to have been Hugely confusing to Zechariah and Elizabeth because having kids in that day was not just an incidental thing, not just a done thing, um, not just a modestly important uh, thing. It was a critical thing that you have children. In the era before social media, having kids was how you extended the fame of your name. That was one of the functions that kids played. They gave you a reputation, hopefully a good one, in the wider world. Uh, Children were the workforce that got the household tasks done. Uh, You know, you couldn't just, you couldn't call up Grubhub. You couldn't just bring in outside help. Your kids had took care of so many things that had to be hands-on performed. And they very often went out and got jobs in the surrounding community and helped you pay the bills that sustained your family other than the charity of the temple. Basically, kids were the only old age social security system in existence at that time. And furthermore, and this really goes to the heart of this story, having children was regarded by most everybody as a sign that God liked you. That God was impressed favorably by your orientation, your piety, your good deeds, whatever it may be. Um, In fact, the psalmist writes these words, and it's a helpful uh, reminder of what was a widespread belief in that time. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are, uh, offspring is a reward from him. It's a reward from God. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Life is a battle. You need arrows. (laughs) You need something that goes out that's going to help protect you and secure you in this life. So blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How full was the quiver for Zechariah and Elizabeth? Empty. Empty. And furthermore, they were both very old, the text says. In other words, the morning of opportunity when they could have had kids had arrived and then was gone. The the early afternoon of possibility had had come and then it had passed by. The early evening of improbable blessing. Maybe it'll still happen. maybe, Maybe it'll still come to pass. Had passed away. And the heavy night of impossible hope had settled upon this couple. Some of us are in a dark night like that now. Maybe not all of us, I hope not all of us. Uh, It's when some of us are doing okay that we can be of most help to those who are struggling but some of us are struggling. It may have nothing to do with childbearing. It might have something to do with childbearing, but it could have nothing to do with that. It might have to do with some other unrequited desire in our lives. Maybe we an unrequited desire for love. I mean, we just figured that by this season of life, we would have found somebody. We would have been somebody to somebody else. But despite all of our yearning and prayer in that direction, it just hasn't happened. Some of us have yearned for a son or a daughter that was once close to us who's now gone away from us or gone down a pathway that we wish they wouldn't be going that would come home. We just have prayed for that. Some of us have longed for a renaissance in some important relationship in our life. We've prayed for it. We've worked for it. It hasn't happened. You might have been praying for the healing of your body uh, or for the healing of somebody else. His body Somebody important to you. You may have been asking God for some deeper kind of peace within your soul, given all it is that you're contending with in life these days. You've waited for it. You've worked for it. You've yearned for it. You've, you've worn out your knees praying for it. And it hasn't come. And the night of impossible hope feels like it's, it's settled upon you. The story of Elizabeth and Zechariah is really an important story to read. For any of us who have longed for grace that's not come, it's this important reminder to us that life is not a this for that quid pro quo arrangement as much as we would wish that sometimes it was. You can be doing most things very well or in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, you can be doing everything blamelessly, and you can still be suffering things that are bad. These things are not connected. Think about this. Was God ever more in love with, ever more present to, ever more at work ultimately for good through jesus then at the cross and yet how did jesus feel forsaken utterly forsaken i think god loved elizabeth <laughs> And I think he loved Zechariah. And I think he never left them. And I think there's every reason to think, based on the character of God we meet in Christ, that he wept, he ached with all of their experience of loss through all of those difficult decades. I think God was there for them. But in the midst of their dark night, God was always planning a new and glorious morn. And he saw a bigger picture than Zach and Elizabeth could have possibly taken in at that moment. He had a much more sophisticated plan that involved a whole bunch of intersections and timings than they could have charted out for their own lives. God saw this incredible redemptive thing that he was going to do, and actually through their lives. And I think there's a lesson in this. As Aaron Foster Uh, recently reminded me God wants us to trust him not because of our circumstances but because of his character he wants our faith to be based not on our present circumstances but on his proven character and I want to urge you if you're in a place of darkness right now to trust God's character We see that character expressed in the remainder of this Bible story. Verse 8 reads, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. People in the priesthood took turns doing this particular job. They had other jobs to do. They, this was a, they, they might be a farmer, they might be a, a vintner, they might be doing something else, but they were also priests and when their time came up, they stepped up and did what was needed and it came that moment for Zechariah. He's there in the temple burning incense, which is the, uh, the physical act or symbol of prayers going up to God and while he's there, we're told, verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the word angel means messenger. Then a messenger of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which means in a really key place, uh, sort of an evidence of, of, of proximity to the prayer at the right side. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. We don't run into angels just every day. They were mighty, awesome creatures. And and the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. That had to have blown the guy's mind. He he, he has to have thought to himself, he's like long since forgotten the possibility, given up on the possibility that God really, really cared in particularity for him and for his wife. And he was faithful still. But what the angel is saying here is, all those times you were down on your knees, crying out, all those times you walked through your days thinking, how am I going to console Elizabeth? All those times when, when she was just aching with desire to have this normal thing happen to her. God was hearing you. He was always hearing you. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, which literally means graced by God. And boy, was John an amazing child. We're talking about John the Baptizer. We're talking about the greatest prophet since Elijah. We're talking about a kid who is going to grow up and prepare the way for the Messiah of the world. We're talking about an amazing vessel of God's power and hope and kingdom light. And God was going to grace this couple as the bearers of this incredible history-changing servant. You know, I want us to key in here on the details of what the angel says. I wanna think with you, not just about the big grace of them being given a kid, but I want us to think about the forms of grace that are described by the angel and, and as, as pointers towards the kind of grace God longs to give to you and to people that you love as well. So let's just break down the specific things the angel says. First, the angel says, for all of your previous suffering and disappointment, you are going to finally experience personal pleasure. I quote, he, meaning your child, will be a joy and a delight to you. He's gonna be a joy and delight to you. This kid is going to make you smile and laugh and feel proud. Every parent's wish, you're gonna get to feel it. That's promise number one. Promise number two. For all of your previous isolation, you will finally experience communal joy. And he goes on to say, and many will rejoice because of your child's birth. Think of how many times they had to have watched other people's children playing in the street. Have watched other children being celebrated for something that they did. Of seeing other family gatherings filled with the laughter of children. Think how many times... Elizabeth and Zechariah had to just watch all this from a distance knowing it would never be their experience. They would never experience that joy that comes to communities of people bound together by the life of kids. And the angel says, you will experience that kind of communal joy. And then the angel goes on to define the greatest grace about this baby He says, in effect, you're going to experience godly fulfillment. For he will be great, this child will be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Now now that should, I, I think, be every parent's fondest wish for their kids if they have a kid at all, they, 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 or, or a niece or a nephew or, or somebody that you care about that's young or a grandchild, you, your prayer ought to be that your kids are not just admired by you, not just enjoyed by the people around them, but by God above all, that God would smile when he watches your kid moving through life. That's my prayer for my kids. I imagine it is for many of us, for ours. But when I think about these forms of grace that I've just described in God's promise to Elizabeth and Zechariah, I'm struck by what a poetic and, and accurate parallel they present to God's demonstrated desire for everybody. Think about this. From the Garden of, of Eden in G- the book of Genesis, um, to the gospel stories, to the new creation in the, at the end of the book of Revelation, again and again, we're, we're given this insight into God's desire to see people experience personal pleasure. I mean, I just we get this picture in Genesis, for example, of God almost hopping up and down as he's saying to, his, to the first human beings, hey, you can eat of all this, you know? You can be fruitful and multiply. Go wild. You see God just rejoicing in the ability to give that kind of of substantive pleasure to people in life. And we see it again in the the ministry of Jesus when he says, I've come in order that you might have life more religiously. No, he doesn't say that. You should be correcting me. I've come that you might have it more abundantly. I've earnestly desired to eat this supper with you guys, he says to his disciples. Even though he's about to go to the cross, he's just rejoicing in the personal pleasure of of eating with these people and of having them share in the, the banquet. In fact, Jesus pictures heaven as like this banquet table. God wants us to experience personal pleasure. It's not the only gift he has for us. It's not the, the, even the priority gift he has for us, but it's one of the big gifts of his grace. And communal joy, boy, that is a big theme throughout the scriptures. <laughs> we, we get so many images of God delighting in the gathering of his people, and of people living in support of one another. And Jesus forms a a church to be that kind of community, even for people that don't have kids and don't have families. Uh, And at the end of time, in the end of history, the new creation is all about people streaming from the east and the west and the north and the south and suddenly finding a forever family around the banquet table of God. God wants us all to know communal joy. I think churches are sort of his first foretaste of these kinds of supernatural unusual confederations of new kinds of family and he wants us to know godly fulfillment he wants us all to be part of his glorious purposes to make things right to put this world back together again the kingdom of god or of heaven as jesus describes it is a dimension where you and I experience personal pleasure and communal joy and the fulfillment of God's good plans in a way that will absolutely redeem the suffering. It will overwrite all the disappointments and all of the losses. It will be as if they didn't exist because of the incredible life that now will. This is his promise. As followers of Jesus, we have hope because we believe that no matter how dark the night of this world gets, and it can get dark and cold, we are nonetheless always moving toward that place, as Capo would say, out yonder where there breaks a new and glorious morn. Always moving in that direction. The problem is the yonder part. The mysterious thing is the yonder part, the why not now part. If I can use the image of of basking in the presence of a delightful child as sort of a poetic metaphor or a pointer towards the, the pleasure and the joy and the fulfillment that God has ultimately in mind for all of us and all of the other important spheres of life, then then maybe some of the life situations I've seen or that you've seen over the course of the years can be kind of helpful analogies to us for for considering or reconsidering the experience of waiting for the yonder to come that we might be going through right now. The very first um, wedding I ever performed, I performed just a couple weeks after I graduated from uh, theological seminary and I married this great young couple, the guy of whom was uh, a classmate of mine at at grad school. And uh, and boy, they had such great hopes. And one of the big hopes they had was they were gonna have a whole ton of kids because they both came from big families, and, and they were messy families, and they were not perfect families, but they had been generally loving families, and they wanted to reproduce that experience of communal joy that they had known. So out yonder, they told me, we're gonna eventually have A bunch of kids. That couple had no idea how close Yonder was. They got pregnant on their honeymoon and there followed a a succession then of these kids long before they had planned for, for them, really. And one of those kids is a member of our church staff now. Bringing blessing here. Another couple I know went through years of in vitro fertilization to no avail. It was an expensive, heart-wringing uh, process. They, they, they finally just gave it all up. I remember meeting with them and talking about their decision to give up. And then suddenly the morning broke and she was pregnant without any medical intervention. I know of more than one couple who were never ever able to sustain a pregnancy. They tried so hard. And then yonder broke the morning in the form of a sudden opportunity to adopt children. And the joy and delight that has come from that experience, I couldn't put into words for them. Um, I have a friend uh, who, who lives in another state who um, was never uh, able to have biological children, but that experience opened her heart and mind to a vision of how God could use her to bring new mornings of hope to forgotten children around the planet. She was a, the thing she knew how to do was build an amazing business. I remember her husband who owned the business died and all the employees came to her and said, uh, we'll take over from here. And she says, No, I think I'll take over from here. And she tripled the business, right? And she took the resources and has taken so many of those resources and she's poured it into orphanages all across the planet. She has countless kids that she's been able to bring hope to. My own sister and numerous families of this church and in your circle of acquaintance have said a heartsick goodbye to a child in this life. But those kids are not lost, including the beautiful young girl whose picture we saw on the video a little while ago. They're not lost, they are waiting on a very bright shoreline for that coming glorious new morning of the resurrection to eternal life to come when those parents will be reunited with their kids and find that their kids are, have never been in trouble, have never had a problem, have always been well since they left them. What I guess I'm trying to say here is we don't control the yonder. We don't, we don't get to schedule the coming of God's redeeming grace. But it is always moving closer to us. As my friend and former colleague, Bob Galehood, a pastor of the church, often said in his many-year journey with cancer, I know God's going to heal me. I know it. I just don't know if it's going to be in this life or in the next. I know that a great good is coming, Bob would so frequently say, quoting the poet George MacDonald, a great good is coming. I want to ask you to believe that, to hold on to that, to cling to that truth. That's a biblical truth. I got a letter this week, uh, one of those Christmas letters that we um, all are getting right now, where people not only give you a card, but they, you know, give you all the family news. This one was a little different. It was a different kind of narrative than I read mostly in in letters like that. And I just want to, I felt like, well, I got it this week. This is timely. I'm going to share this with you. Um, This is uh, a letter from a young mom whose wedding I was honored to perform and whose father um, went to heaven in March of 21 and whose funeral I performed. And she described visiting her father's burial site just about a month ago on what would have been his 75th birthday. And this is what this young woman writes. I placed flowers on his grave, and then I did what I typically do when I visit. Stroll around the graveyard and calculate the ages of the souls underneath the headstones that I pass. At first, it seems unfair that my dad had to leave us at 73. Then I stop at the resting place of a boy who was 20 when he left, and then a girl who was 16, and another just turned 12, and a six-year-old child, and a two-year-old, a one-month-old and finally, the somber ground of a baby who passed the same day his life again. While there are also the graves of those who lived well into their 90s, I'm just humbled, she writes, thinking of the families who suffered tragedy to lose children so young. And I recognize that I am fortunate for all of the years with my family past and president. How I've been graced, she's saying. It's with this acknowledgement that I detach somewhat from the daily battle of my life for this moment of time, she says. I'm reminded that the good and the bad don't refute one another. They coexist within our lives. We wrestle with the challenges and the struggles while still finding joy. And I would add, we can do that. Though it's so hard to wait, let's admit that. It's so hard to wait for the yonder to come. We can wait because a great good, a glorious new morn, the birth of God's redeeming grace promised in the first coming of Jesus and of his eventual return, it is always, this grace is always moving closer to us. The angel said to Zechariah, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, because I am Gabriel. (laughs) I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of, of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Please pray with me. great God. I am nothing like Gabriel, but I just thank you for the message of your good news. Please give us courage. Please give us the patience we need to await the personal pleasure, the communal joy, the beautiful fulfillment of all your good purposes. And whether that yonder is today or is tomorrow or is somewhere out beyond, we put our trust in your character and in your plan because of the sign you've given of your goodness to us in the coming of Jesus, in whose name we pray and all God's people said. Amen.